The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further, allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26th at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within UnityOnlineRadio.org The voice of an awakening world Discover hope and healing from the other side Welcome to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman Listen Yes, indeed, my friends, they are all around you, your loved ones who have crossed to the other side. And this show today is going to talk exactly about that, my favorite topic. But before we dive into that, I have to just, for the record, thank Unity Online Radio. This is the very last program that we'll be recording with them because as of today, the network is no longer going to be on the air So I want to give my heartfelt thanks to Diane Ray, who first invited me to be on this program four years ago, and to the two sound engineers, Jeff Comfort and Louis Pagan, who have been so awesome to work with, true professionals, fun, and just have their act together. They've made this show so easy for me to do and just a a total joy. So I wish them all well, and they just have everybody's gratitude. So... Let's make this a good show. Our guest today is Stephen Berkeley, and he is a producer of a documentary that I want you to watch. And we're going to talk about an outstanding opportunity that you have to watch it because it's not yet available publicly. We'll talk all about that. The documentary is called Living with Ghosts. And I have to tell you, when I first heard that title, I didn't like it because I don't like scary ghosts things. But when I talked to Stephen, I found out why he called it that. You'll find out too. And I just was completely won over because I love where this man's heart is and why he did this program and what it's all about. So let's meet him. Stephen, welcome to the show. Thank you, Suzanne. That was a great introduction. I appreciate that. (laughs) Well, I remember when we chatted and I just thought, oh, this guy, I need to do everything I can to help him promote this film because it's it's what this work is all about. So why don't we just dive right in? I would like to hear your background, but I want to address that whole ghost issue. What is the film about, if we can call it a film? I don't know. Do you still use that term these days? Sure. Yeah. Okay. What is it about and why did you have to put ghosts in the title? Okay, I'll I'll tell you first what it's about. It's about a grief-stricken widow who volunteers to participate in a university study that's fairly unconventional. Researchers at the University of North Texas are facilitating or inducing sensory reconnections between survivor and deceased. It's the first publicly funded study of its kind. 
and it's it was pretty excited to be a part exciting to be a part of it. The word ghosts. I love that question because it created some controversy. The last thing I expected with this film was it to cause controversy because of the title. But uh -huh. I've gotten quite a bit of pushback. And it turns out, as you as you felt yourself, people who are in the spiritualist camp find the word a little bit unsettling. People don't want to think of their deceased child as a ghost, for example. Right. Yeah. Um, I first found out about this when I wrote to Bill Guggenheim as soon as I finished the film. Let's stop a second. Bill Guggenheim is the author of the best-selling book, Hello from Heaven. Right. Iconic about after-death communications. Yes. Yeah. He, co he coined the phrase after-death communication. He's iconic in the space. And I saw him as kind of a, a hero in a way for me in terms of this topic. So the first thing I wanted to do is I wanted to send the film to Bill Guggenheim and get his approval, get him to give me a pat on the head and maybe even give me his endorsement. He wrote me back a fairly scathing email saying, Steve, this has the word ghost in the title. I will not watch your film. I will not read a book with that word in it. It's a pejorative word. I think of spookiness and Halloween and white sheets. Yep. I am, I'm not going to watch your film. So that was that. But um, I did. The, the Saving Graces, the film uh, made its premiere at the International Association for Near-Death Studies. And I got to see who was logging in. I could see that Bill Guggenheim's name flitted across the screen. So I know he watched it when somebody else was presenting it. Okay. When he, when, he saw the, when he saw the opening credits, he may have walked out. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I know that was, that was a triumph for me that he did sign up to watch it eventually. But why did I choose ghosts, you asked me? Yes. Okay. Well, ghosts has multiple connotations, right? Figurative and metaphorical. Some people in the story are actually experiencing the energy of their loved ones in the house, and that's a literal translation. And others are haunted by the memory of their husbands. Okay. And so for them, it's more of a metaphorical connotation. Also, I was making a mainstream film. I wasn't trying to just appeal to my camp. I didn't want to preach to the choir. I wanted to make a film that the mainstream would be interested in. And ghosts is a mainstream word. I wasn't going to choose a, a, a title with a word veil in it, for instance, or heaven or forever. This was going to be a film that was straddling the line and would give equal weight to both the skeptics and the spiritualists. And you've done that very well. We'll Thank talk you. about that. I mean, really, really well. Thank yeah. You. Okay, so you stuck with it. I'll give you credit for that. And and it's not a spooky, scary ghost documentary at all. So I just hope that that title doesn't keep a lot of people, the Bill Guggenheims of this world, from watching it. You know, Suzanne, somebody told me, somebody made a suggestion to me, somebody who really liked the film from Helping Parents Heal, which you're familiar with that organization, I know. Yes, yes. Uh, she, she, I, 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 when, I, when I spoke there to that group, I said, if anybody comes up with a better title, let me know, because I'm open if somebody mm. has a better title for me. And somebody came back to me after communicating with their deceased child, came back to me and said, I have an idea for you. How about living with friendly ghosts? And I huh. said, hmm, that's interesting. That was an interesting <laughs> it's possibility, I thought. Well, it's interesting that you're open to it. 
But okay, so now we've set that stage and we, we know it's not a scary ghost movie right. and it's about these uh, after-death communications, the study. I noticed right. you said that was going on in the in present tense, so they're still doing these studies. Well, the, the particular study that's featured in the film has been complete and the professor finished her report relatively recently. It's not actually published yet. This is not, it's unpublished, unpublished news right now. So that's kind of exciting too, but it's very relatively recent, but it's, it's ended. Well, that may help the, the documentary when that comes out, but let's save that for the second half of the show. Okay. For now, you said, I don't want to preach to my camp. Now, you don't look like a woo-woo guy, <laughs> <laughs> and, but clearly you believe in ghosts, if we're going to use your term. You believe in an afterlife. So let's back up. And say, where did that ask? Where did that belief come from? Well, to tell you the truth, Suzanne, I made this film for who I was when I started making the film, which was on the fence. Huh. That's why I'm saying I wanted to make it for people like me, for people on the fence and people who weren't sure. I was always open to it, but I also have a healthy amount of skepticism. That's very good. That's the way we all should be. Yeah. Right. As, as I know you are, too. So, um It's something that I've kind of gradually, I yielded to the spiritualist camp during the making of this film. You keep using the word spiritualist, and I know who they are, and I am not a a card-carrying spiritualist. My my philosophy aligns with theirs, but why don't you define that term spiritualist for our listeners? You know, it's, um, I'm trying to be kind of colloquial. I'm not trying to um, pigeonhole anybody here. If there's a better word or a more politically correct word, I'll use that instead. We don't have to be politically correct. (laughs) Suzanne, what do you like to use for yourself? Well, I'm not quite sure what you're referring to. People who believe in an afterlife. Oh, that's all I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, The afterlife camp? Can I say that? Oh, that might work. So so you were on the fence, but I understand you had a true immediate family experience with afterlife visits. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, well, that's how I got started with this film. My father died. My father died. My family congregated in Florida where my parents lived. And we did everything you're supposed to do when somebody dies. We got my mother into a support group, grief counselor, religious services. Nothing had any impact at all. The conventional protocol just wasn't working for her. I found out later, it really doesn't work for anybody, but I shouldn't say that. It wasn't working for her. Okay. And we, um, you know, we, we, she really wasn't functional and it was kind of alarming to us. We knew we had to do something. And uh, at, at some point we, we were doing everything we could. And the only thing that worked was, I shouldn't say it worked yet. Let me just back up a little bit. While we were in this state with my mother and taking her to all these places and trying to figure out what to do with her, her neighbor and bridge partner and friend, Ethel, comes over to the house and she says, now, I, really- I have to interrupt here because you and I talked, but I didn't realize that the characters in your documentary were based on your mom. How could I have missed that? Because yeah. I've watched the movie, everybody. And there's and he has two different scenes, two different family he's dealing with. And the one scene is this older retired woman in Florida who's on her own. She's a widow. And it goes back and forth. And you just really like this story in Florida. And I recognize so many people because I used to live in Florida and uh and would see that community a lot. And so you're telling me this is based on your mom. 
It is. My mom is the Irene character in the film who doesn't believe in an afterlife. And she's having some trouble in her grief. And Ethel comes over to the house, her friend. And I, I hadn't started shooting yet. So I have to ask, is, does your mom play in the, in the film or do you have all actors? My mother is Irene in the film. That's really her. That's oh, really her. She did a her. great job. She's not okay. an actress. <laughs> That's really her. <laughs> okay. Um, and Ethel, Ethel came over and said, Irene, we don't talk about this very often, but I do this thing. I write to my husband every night, my late husband. Goosebumps. <laughs> and, 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 and it really helps me. Oh, and by the way, he writes back to me. Oh, I love that. Now, my mother was not in a place where she could digest this. Her, she had just lost her husband. And it was, too, it was a radical idea for all of us, actually. In fact, my brothers were pretty upset. Who is this kooky woman coming over to our house accosting our mother with this idea? I was, I couldn't help it. I was kind of tickled because I am open to things and I was just interested in Ethel and her process. I ended up following over her to her house where Ethel proceeded to show me a stack of yellow legal pads. And on these yellow legal pads is her correspondence with her husband over 12 years across wow. the veil. Wow. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. She doesn't seem schizophrenic. Right. Right. That was my attitude towards her, even though, and, and I, I was asked her a bunch of questions. And even though I left thinking, okay, that's a very kooky lady, but I'm kind of digging her. I just, I thought she was very pleasant conversation. She was very nice. She was very smart. She was very grounded. I asked for her email address and I ended up corresponding with her at some point. But at that moment, I thought maybe it's time to bring down a camera crew because here was my mother having a really tough time. And Ethel, who was getting through grief seemingly seamlessly, maybe this is a cute story, having these two ladies juxtaposed. So it really just it started out as just a cute story of these wow. two ladies with very different styles. And ends up, you, you want to give it away? We just make people say they have to watch, does Steve's mother <laughs> start writing to Steve's father or not? <laughs> but to tell you when this documentary really started, the idea really kind of changed. And that's He's not going to tell you. I followed my mother to her grief counselor's therapy. Oh. That's when it really happened because it wasn't supposed to be a controversial story. It wasn't supposed to be heavy drama. It was a cute story. Uh -huh. But when I followed my mother to a grief counselor and my mother started telling my grief counselor that, you know what, she is interested in afterlife stuff. Before I should tell you that before we got to the grief counselor, um, my, my mother found a light in her house that was blinking. And Ethel, the cookie neighbor, said, hey, you know what? A, a light was blinking for me when my husband died. I think that that's their way of saying hello. Yes. And so my mother started reluctantly started to talk to the blinking light. Love it. And other lights in the house. It wasn't just one room. It was every room in the house. There are blinking lights. And my mother oh, started. Oh, are you all paying attention? This is an easy way for those across the veil to get our attention. So she started having conversations with who she suspected was my father in the house, causing the lights to blink. And this was making her feel better. This was the only thing that was making her feel better. She was starting to climb out of the doldrums of grief 
and she was starting to reintegrate into her social circles. But then she made the tragic mistake of sharing this with her grief counselor. Yeah. You cover this in the film. Yes. Yeah. Uh And the grief counselor said something along the lines of, you know, Irene, that's a short-term solution to a long-term problem. Hmm. Now, I hadn't done the research yet on this. I I was about to find out that half the population has these experiences and does better from it. But at that time, I just intuitively thought, why are you disabusing my mother of this notion, even if it is a placebo effect? Mm-hmm. Let her have this. Why not? It's not hurting anybody. Right. So it actually, the film was more born from us, that sense of injustice, like that this, should, this shouldn't be happening. And I did the research and then the rest, we'll take it from there. <laughs> so the psychologist that is in the film and you, you reenact the scenes with your mother talking with him. Uh, What's a reenactment? That- wasn't a reenactment. Well, Ethel, Ethel was talking to a psychiatrist. Okay, My mother was talking to a grief counselor. They're two oh. different scenes. Oh, okay, okay. But those were re- those were not reenactments. There are no reenactments in this film except for one, and it was just like a logistical thing that had to do with somebody on a computer having to reenact it because we weren't there to capture it live. But no, there there are no reenactments. Wow. Some things look a little bit stagey. I was told, but that's an explanation for that. I like movies to look pretty i can't help it i'm I'm a movie buff yeah so a a really strict documentary would just shoot the point the camera and let people do what they do and something sometimes they're out of focus and out of frame and sometimes they're not i kind of had a i positioned people to make sure they're facing the camera i asked people to wait to speak until the cameras are ready so sometimes it looks a little bit stagey but everything's real it's it's shot like a reality show i I am I'm stunned. Yeah. Wow. Very, very honest conversations with the psychiatrist who, who really indicates, oh, this is not exactly healthy talking to your deceased loved ones. And, and I just want to reach through the camera and say, no, don't tell her that. Right. It's helpful. Right. Yeah. Wow. But ultimately, your mother does communicate with your dad. I mean, she does have something towards the very end, something happens, but I, w- I don't want to talk about that too much in case right. people, people want to, I want to keep people in suspense a little bit on that. Yeah. And why do we want to do that, Steve? <laughs> why do we want to keep? Because we're going to have a special screening of this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, May 13th to May 16th, there will be a screening just for this audience. Messages of Hope audience will get a special screening just for them. And there's a sign-up sign link where people can register. So you have to register before you could actually attend the screening. And I believe that registration link is going to be available with this recording. It's also available other places, right, Suzanne? There'll be places where people Well, it'll be in up. the description of this when we make it into a video on YouTube. Right. And we'll probably put it on my podcast page as well. And so what about after the special screening, if people watch this video after May 26th of 2022, uh, hopefully you'll it'll be public somewhere in the future. What it is your goal? P- it will be on PBS eventually. Right now, I'm still trying to raise money for PBS. I found that the hard way that PBS isn't free. I'm going to have wow. to recut the film for PBS and they have a presenting station fee and all this. So I'm doing these private screenings to raise money to be able to put it on PBS. And it will be on PBS sometime in 2023. Not sure of the exact date yet, but they, they like it. They want it. 
Yeah. So, so the screening a- is free and you can watch it, but I'm, I'm sorry. This, I, I, I should help about the screening. The yeah. screening has, I, I have two different cuts. The, there's a, a, a short, which I was planning on making available for free, which gives you the basic information about the therapy featured in the film. And then I have a full 90 minute version that I'm asking people to make like a minimum donation for. So that'll all be obvious when you go on and you get the link and you'll, you'll see what it is. And that, that donation is to get this film onto PBS. Exactly. Yeah. So you produced it completely on your own. You were into film before. I shouldn't say that, Suzanne. I have to give somebody credit who's very important to this film. There's my, my, my writing partner and I guess co-producer is Christopher Seward. Christopher Seward is best known for Fahrenheit 9-11 and Sicko. So he really has the chops for like making an award-winning film. Because mm. those are two of, two of the highest grossing films of all time. Wow. I'm the guy that kind of sits to his left and say, okay, I like that or I don't like that. But he's really the craftsman. It's my story. It's my family that's in the film. Uh-huh. But he's really, the, he's really the filmmaker, I should say. Okay. So watch the description in the YouTube portion of this show when it comes out within a couple of days in the description of the episode will be a link to that screening where you can sign up. Super. All right. So the other scene besides these retired widows learning to write to their deceased husbands, one already does, the other one's checking it out, deals with a family who's lost their father and right. the woman's husband. Where did that story come from? So Ethel, my mother's friend and bridge partner, who I got to be very close to during the making of this film, she wrote a book on automatic writing because that's her thing. Yeah. It's really more of a, it's, it's not a, it's, a, it's more of a, um, a transcript of her conversations between her and her husband the first year or so once they reunited. And cool. it's very sweet. And it's very boring in a way. <laughs> it's boring in a way because it's just it's a very prosaic conversation between husband and wife. At yeah. the same time, it's fascinating because we know he's not alive on this planet. Yeah. So you hear this, have this very prosaic conversation going on between these two people when one is not in material form. And so it's a page turner, even though it's boring. It's a, it's a contradiction <laughs> in a way. Okay. Anyway. I ended up buying the rights to her book so I could make this film because in that book, she talks about her daughter-in-law, her estranged daughter-in-law, her daughter-in-law and her aren't on good terms and they're not on good terms because of the automatic writing. So her daughter-in-law lost her husband, which is Ethel's son, and it caused a bit of family discord. So I knew I wanted to make this film because of just what was going on in front of me. But I also thought this was also a very interesting story because we get to see how the belief systems can be polarizing in a family. Yes. So I forgot. It's been a while since I watched it, Steve, and I forgot then that Ethel's writing to her husband, but she also has a son who crossed. She writes to her husband and to her son both, more to her husband. Okay. And and, and her daughter-in-law did not like her daughter's Ethel's granddaughters being introduced to automatic writing. That's right. Yeah. Wow. So it really, you've done a beautiful job of crafting the drama and the contention there, but what's really well done is the visible grief on 
the the widow, the younger yeah. widow's face, how it affects her life, how it affects her daughters. Mm-hmm. She'd been carrying that grief for how long at the time the film was made? When I met her, I believe it was 12 11, 11 or 12 years. And then when we started, stopped filming, it was more like 18, 19 years, something like that. Yeah. And I mean, it's just, it's etched on her face. It's just this just yeah. sadness that she's carried for over a decade because he, he was her life. And once he died, that was it. Yeah. I hadn't done the research yet, but I think she qualifies for somebody with prolonged grief disorder or a complicated ah. grief. One of the, one of those disorders, which I had no idea even existed until I started making this film. And then I found out why it's so important to get intervention where it's necessary with grief. Well, this woman did get it in the form of this, these, do you call it experiments at the university in Texas? Uh, well, they call it a study. Okay. And it's a study comparing two different therapies. They're comparing something called induced after death communication therapy, comparing that to traditional grief counseling. Uh-huh. And I can't remember, but did how did she get into that study? Her her daughter found out about it. Oh, that's right, online. Her daughter, her daughter mm-hmm. learned about it online. That's what that's our one sheet. We had to re, we had to ask her to read redo the research for us because we didn't get that live. But her daughter found the research at University of North Texas and said, Mom, I think you should do this. And so, so hang on a sec. So you're saying the only recreation was when the daughter went online doing the research? Well, I, I have I have to admit, I have a little secret here I have to share with you. I'm going to share it with your audience, too, but don't tell anybody, okay? <laughs> They're listening, Steve. Karen's <laughs> daughter was my inside man. She was a mole for us. So I said, look, if you really want this therapy, we'll help you. We'll help you. We'll fly you and your family to Texas to get the therapy, but you got to do me this favor. Let me shoot you guys having these conversations. Give me a heads up before you have the conversations about the therapy so I, I could get the crew together and film it. My mouth is literally hanging open. I would have sworn those were recreations, reenactments. The you conversations, know, what I'm talking about, everybody, is really you see the daughter, you know, going up to mom who's drinking a glass of wine and she's having the coffee. And I'm like, oh, that's so perfect. They stage the wine like mom turns to the wine because she's grieving. Let's make sure she has the wine and the daughter has the coffee. And oh, so we have a little cliffhanger here as we're coming up to a break. So you're going to hear more about how this comes about, that they actually go do the study. And I want to talk more about this induced after-death communication because it's so exciting for anybody who's grieving. So don't go away. We'll be back after just a very brief break. More with Stephen Berkeley and Living with Ghosts. Human design is a system that offers profound insights into your inner self and how you interact with the world around you. Quantum human design takes that process one step further 
allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24th through 26 at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive. Thanks for joining us. This is UnityOnlineRadio.org, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back. You're listening to Messages of Hope with Suzanne Giesman. And we're talking with Stephen Berkeley, producer of the documentary, award-winning documentary, Living with Ghosts. And I'm still just, as the British say, gobsmacked that you did not reenact those scenes, that you followed this family around as they were actually considering having this, uh, what is it called? Induced after-death communication. Now, you must have known about the protocol in the study, and push I, in have to, I have to admit, I caught a glimpse of it, but it really was Karen's daughter who found it and decided to, to do this with her mother. She really thought it was important to try. So are you saying that initially you contacted this family only because there was this contention with Ethel's daughter-in-law that she didn't want her to do the writing? And then it takes off in this other direction that shows another form yes. of grief therapy? There, there was, a, I think, a four or five-year gap between the time I first started shooting them. Like in the beginning, you see Karen's hair is pretty long. Yes. And then five years later, I got back, and you could see the kids are older. They're out of, you know, they're in school yeah. or they're out of school. And, um, yeah, everybody's older. And it wasn't until then that I said, okay, let's, let's make you guys the featured, the featured subjects of this film. Wow. Okay. So tell us about IADC. Okay, so IADC, which stands for Induced After-Death Communication, is a derivative of EMDR, which most people are familiar with. It's a very, it's now an established trauma therapy. It's something that a lot of vets coming back from Afghanistan or, or wherever are using to help them get, you know, with, help them with their PTSD, et cetera. That's when, eye movement desensitization. What's the yes, R? I, I movement desensitization and reprocessing. Reprocessing, okay. stands for. Now, Al Botkin is a therapist. And in the 19, early 1990s, he was administering EMDR to somebody in a VA hospital in Chicago. He decided to modify the EMDR just slightly. He wasn't going for any kind of effect. He just said, okay, let's do it again and let's do it this way. And the sitter or the client had an induced, had a, had an after death communication. And this was not expected. This was a big surprise, but Al Botkin decided, well, let's see if we could repeat this. And he repeated it for a couple of other clients. And it turns out that it's repeatable. So what happened was, I mean, I could, we can go into the details of how it works, but for the time being, I'll just suffice it to say that he wrote a book on this procedure because it was different enough from EMDR where he felt like he could kind of coin it, coin this phrase, induced after death communication. It turns out it's really not, he's not really inducing anything. I don't want people to be misled. He's creating an environment where it's fertile for a visit. 
it's almost like you're, he's he's giving people the feeling like like a near death experience would be without the without the tra- trauma, but yeah. he's doing something to make it work. So these people are having these induced after death communications, and they're being healed in two ninety minute sessions. When I say healed, I want to be careful there. I don't know if they're healed for life, but whatever they're suffering from on a daily basis because of the loss, that seems to disappear very quickly. So yes, these, these are actual visits from their loved ones across the veil, and they know yes. it. They have a feeling that's totally different than just, oh, I'm thinking about lo- my loved one. These are, it's, right. it's vivid, like a dream visit, only it's, it's right here in their face. They are awake, and, and a visit can mean anything from sight, smell, uh, you know, touch, visual, you know, it, it's, I mean, it's, it's any of the senses can be involved and you have the sense that your loved one is in the room with you. And I hear, I often can hear my listeners when in the middle of the show and right now, now I can hear a whole bunch of people saying, why do I not know about this? Why don't more people know about this? How can I get this? And this is what your documentary is helping people yeah, to yeah. know. Um, the, the, the founder of this technique will be the first person to say he's not a businessman. He's not a marketer. He did not know how to get the word out there without it, without somehow cheapening it. So he was very careful into how he would get it out there, but he did manage to train about 500 therapists worldwide who have added this as part of their practice. And it is, it can so be, I, I just want to say that right? it is a very legitimate practice accepted by trained professionals. And that's the thing you, you must see a trained psychotherapist because it can bring up stuff. Right. 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 It's, it's important that you go to somebody licensed and somebody who's, you know, legitimate because apparently if you're not in, they have to take a survey of some kind uh, that the therapist administer. They have to, they can't have any kind of like manic depressive disorder or, um, bipolar disorder. There are things that could go wrong if you're predisposed to some kind of an episode like that. So there is a rigid screening out process you have to go through before you can get the therapy. But depression alone does not do that because that's the whole point to right. overcome the depression. Clinical depression apparently can be a block, but if it's not severe enough. Now I thought Karen, I thought she was almost tantamount to a clinically depressed patient but she was able to do the therapy. So it's, it's got to be a level of egregiousness, I suppose. Yeah. Okay. So they did this study. What is the, what is it? University of. It's West university Texas? of North Texas, North Texas, where they did the, where Jan Holton did the study. Jan Holton, by the way, co-wrote with Bruce Grayson, who I'm sure most of your listeners know, they co-wrote a book called the handbook of near death experiences, which is also like a seminal work for near death experiencers. And she's president of the International Association for Near-Death Studies. So it's her study, and she is a professor, or now she's not, but she was a professor at the University of North Texas. And she was able to get them to fund the study, which is a real coup, because as you know, academia doesn't like to get involved in anything after death related, anything Mm -hmm, metaphysical. Mm -hmm. That's like a taboo thing. But she was comparing two different therapies, There was a therapeutic value to having either this legitimate after-death communication or even if it's a simulated after-death communication, either one, the therapy works just as well. So she was able to get the funding for this kind of work. So you were able to film this family 
Karen and her daughter going, one of the two daughters we have, you say, Jessica went with her and Stephanie the other, that they went with her to Texas. So now I know it's not a recreation. I can't believe it. Wow. So this is cool because you didn't know how it was going to come out. I didn't. I had no idea how it was going to come out. Well, tell us how it went. But I knew I knew it was going to be good because the family that I was working with were just very real and they didn't mind the cameras as a fact. We, we were with these families, my family, my mother, her friend and Ethel's family. We were with them over seven years. Huh. They got used to us. We were always there. We, we became part of the wallpaper. <laughs> so fortunately, it didn't make a difference. They were able to be themselves with us around. And that, that was no different in Texas. They were just able to be themselves. And even if the therapy didn't, well, I'm not even going to say whether it worked or not, because that's, you have to see the movie to know whether it worked or not for Karen. But I knew that it was going to be a worthwhile venture to do it with them. Well, I just have to say, you know, figure it out, everybody. This is why you're on the show, because this is just, this is the messages of hope show. And this process, this procedure in, induced after death communication works and lifts grief the change is dramatic dramatic and and what's great is i don't i don't even think this again this is not publicized yet but jan's report has been accepted for publication by a a, a academic journal called grief matters which means that she was able to establish statistical significance which in layman's terms means that the therapy works so much better than traditional grief counseling that she was able to get this published. So not only does it work, but when that hits the news, I think people are going to see a change in terms of how they process grief, in terms of the national zeitgeist. I think something's going to change. I love that. Zeitgeist. Will you define that, please? <laughs> <laughs> the norms. The norms of how, how we... The, conven- the convention is going to have to make a change. Because yeah. right now... Traditional to. talk therapy just doesn't work for people. But this is so exciting because it works because there is an afterlife and their loved ones are cooperating and showing up. They're right here, but they're able to be seen because their family members here get in the right state of consciousness yes. to perceive there's, them. Suzanne, there's one wrinkle to that. The founder of the therapy, when he's asked, well, are these real visits or are people just hallucinating? Are they, are they, is it wish f- fulfillment? Is that what's happening? Al Botkin won't answer that question because he was smart enough to realize that if he made this therapy about whether or not the personality survives this form or not, if that's the debate he was going to get mired in, then the word wouldn't spread. He said, yeah. let's focus on the healing. That's, that's all, brilliant. That's all yeah. I want to think about. And that's so right. he'll say to people, it doesn't matter whether it's simulated or a real visit. People are being healed at the same exact rate, whether they're a believer or a skeptic. And get this, Suzanne, this is going to blow your mind. The skeptics actually do better in this therapy. Now ask me why. I have to ask you why. <laughs> why? Because the believers get very excited to have this therapy when they find out that other people are having these reunions. They want it and they want it badly. So they go into the therapy room full of expectations and expectations can block results. Whereas the skeptics are not expecting anything to happen. They go in there with the best state of mind 
to be receptive to this kind of phenomenon. This is what I tell everybody when I do a reading. Have no expectations. Just be open to whatever might happen. But you can tell the skeptics who are closed-minded. That does make a difference. It does. Huh. Mm -hmm. So what I love about this film now, especially now that I know they're not reenactments, is that you really do straddle that fence. You, You have the psychiatrist who absolutely doesn't believe it. He's trying to let these poor widows think that there's something wrong with them. It's not his fault. That's his belief system. His training, yeah. Yeah, right, his training. But you also brought in the Karen's family's, I don't know what his denomination is. We'll call him a pastor. Is he a priest, a preacher? I don't know. Oh, the, uh, one of the, Stephanie was a student, That's and it. that was a professor she was talking to, a, the, a theologian. A theologian, and he didn't buy it. Well, he, 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 he was, you know, he was at St. Sacred Heart University and he said, you know, in, in Catholicism, we don't question faith. We just know we're not supposed to exercise, you know, dabble in divination. You know, we, we just believe that we're going to, you know, there'll be a, a whatever it is, at some point we'll meet God and we'll meet our, our family members, but not now. I, I can't. Yeah, I was surprised that that he would repeat that on camera in a reenactment. So now I know he was just he was absolutely stating from his heart, from his current yeah, belief, yeah. what his truth was. And it made it hard because here's this daughter trying to find healing for her mom and for herself. herself yeah. And she she's trying to make up her mind. Do I try to contact dad? Yeah. It's beautifully done. Thank you. Yeah. So let's just repeat that in the description of this episode, you'll find a link to a screening of the documentary Living with Ghosts sometime, anytime that you want to watch it between May 13th and 16th. That's the date, May 13th and 16th. So please do watch it because it's captivating. It's very well done and very exciting. Very exciting. How can people find out more about IADC? They could find out more if they go to the website that for the film, which is livingwithghostsmovie.com, there's a resources tab. Perfect. And on that tab, there's all kinds of, there's an abstract to the study. And there's also just books on after death communication. And there's books on automatic writing. And it's just a good place to find tools that I use to make the film. Nice. Have you tried automatic writing to contact your dad? I, I have tried it. Um, not to contact my dad, but to contact others. Uh, I have not been successful yet, but I, I should take that back. I had a kind of a success, but it's really hard to repeat. And it involved a, like a magic trick with cards. <laughs> I don't want to get, I don't think I should get into that. It's too convoluted, yeah. but, but I, I felt like I got some validation that I, I could do it, but I have a little bit of ADD. It's hard for me to sit down with a pen okay. and just kind of wait for something to happen. Yeah. But I know it works because I've seen it work. And I, it worked for me kind of mildly. So that answered the next question I was going to ask, because you said you started out this project on the fence. Where would yeah. you say you are in relation to the fence now? You know, I'm, 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 I'm all the way over the fence. And, and I, I feel like this is a safe room I'm in right now with you and your audience. So I could probably admit... I won't admit this publicly because I really want people to see me as an objective filmmaker and not someone who's necessarily a believer or non-believer. 
but I had a visit from my father mm -hmm. and it was the most profound event in my life. Tell us about it. We love these stories. <laughs> really? Oh, Suzanne, haven't you had heard enough of these stories? You never know. No, we never hear enough of these stories, right, everybody? Bring it on. But keep in mind that I didn't have a great relationship with my dad, so this could not be a wish fulfillment kind of thing for me. But about six months after my father passed, I was in bed with my eyes closed just before wake, awake, wakefulness, which I've heard since then is when most people have lucid dreams, right? Yes. That's right. So I, I knew I was kind of awake, even though my eyes were closed and I was in bed. And there was my dad. Hmm. And I was like, wow, you, you look good, dad. You know, this is what I was thinking. Yeah. And I was thinking in, in, within, a, within a few seconds, I'm thinking, wow, you know, this is a man who's died, who I spent my life with. That I don't, I don't know how I feel about even seeing him right now. Huh. But we hugged. And in that moment, I realized I have a lot of affection for him, even though we didn't hug in life. And that was very healing for me. I realized that I really did miss him. I really did love him. And that was really, really nice to hug him. And I felt him. I felt oh. his body, which was really strange because how could that be? If he's just energy, how could I be feeling his body? How could I be smelling him? But I had that kind of visceral experience very sensory overload experience. And when I woke up, I was like, wow, that's what that is. That, that was an after-death contact. That's great. And this is before I started making the movie. This Perfect. is even better. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this was really a surprise. And anybody I tell this story to, I'm sure they would think, ah, that's probably, probably a dream, but I, I don't mind people thinking that I know better. That's awesome. What a gift. What a gift. Yeah. So you followed these folks around for seven years, you said? Yeah. And you years. sure weren't doing it for the money then. <laughs> no, I mean, it's documentaries are kind of notorious for not making money. I mean, I'm not expecting to make money from the film, but it's something that I felt I had to do because I could not not share Ethel with the world because what she was doing was just to me, was just amazing. She was having these long conversations every night with her husband. And again, whether it was in her own mind or whether she was really having this connection, she was doing great. She was very mentally healthy and she was pushing 90. And I was like, that's just fantastic. And how, how could, how could, how, why shouldn't we all be doing this if that's really something we could do? That's right. Yeah. It's just the BS that gets in the way and that's belief system. That it's not possible, that we can't do it, that we shouldn't do it, that it's scary. And just think about our loved ones across the veil who are just waiting for us to pick up the pen or have those conversations. My guy, Brenda, just tickled my hair. She just does that. She gives, it feels like a bug in my hair. And it, I know it's not a bug. It's Brenda. She's just saying, yeah, everybody, pay attention. This is real. We want to talk to you. Yeah. Awesome. So what have we not talked about that needs to come up? Let's see. We talked a lot about the study, which is important, and about how, oh, here's something I thought was important. You know, are you familiar with the DSM and the hallucinations of that's the a, that's, a, that's the manual that psychologists, psychiatrists right. use to put labels on yes. mental disorders. Yes. Right? So mm -hmm. the American Psychiatric Association added to the DSM the normal hallucinations of bereavement, because there was enough studies like the one I'm talking about now 
where it's obvious that people are getting these kinds of visits. And you said the word normal. And the DSM, it's like the, the APA was not really ready to completely embrace the phenomenon. So it's a little bit of a cop out. Yeah, but they're still calling them hallucinations. They're calling them hallucinations, which is a contradiction in terms, right? Right. So they included this oxymoron in the DSM, even though Normal the phrasing, hallucination. phrasing does not make sense, right. but they're not quite ready to embrace a metaphysical phenomenon. Mm-hmm. They, they got, they have to, they're not ready for it. So unfortunately, they're still calling it a hallucination, but it's been codified in the DSM that these are normal and should not be pathologized. And the fact that my mother's therapist was pathologizing it, that's a problem in our society. But let's just, let's make sure everybody understands that word, that it is a pathology means that it's not normal, that it's unhealthy, that it should be treated. So you're saying that they put it in the book and they are saying in the book, the manual that psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists use, don't make this abnormal. Don't treat this as anything other than normal. Don't treat this like this is a medical problem. And yet, as you can see in the movie, it happens all the time. The psychiatrist in the film, the psychologist in the film, they're calling it denial. It's not denial. It's actually a healthy thing. The times are changing. That's a good thing. Yep. Yeah. You just took a sip from your copy and it says film guy on there. I am film guy. You've done film for many years. How does this one rank with other films you've done as far as your favorite or a project next to your heart? Well, this is my first fully produced, self-produced feature film so this has to be number one both because of what it is covering how much it could help people yeah and the fact that it's all me so of course this has to be my favorite film um i should mention the continuing bonds theory is that something that you've talked about on your show at all not at all (laughs) this film is not about my film is not about ghosts it's about continuing bonds it's about a research that came out in 1995 that basically debunked Freud's theory that we're supposed to sever ties. We're not supposed to sever ties. The research has already been done that our nervous systems simply work better when we maintain a connection to our loved ones, whether they're here or whether they're somewhere else. We need that, to- that bears saying again. I would like you to say that again, Stephen, for everybody who's listening. There's a report and a book called Continuing Bonds by Dennis Class. And that's about that's basically debunking the the myth that we're supposed to sever ties with our deceased loved ones. Mm-hmm. Freud wrote a paper called Morning and Mel- uh, Morning and Melancholy in 1917, and people read, read that report and said, "Oh, Freud, who's the heavy hitter in the field, he's saying we have to sever, have sever ties. We're going to sever ties." Well, he, he didn't actually say that, but people read the report, thought that that's what they were supposed to do, so they did that. And they, there are still psychiatrists who say we're supposed to sever ties. But we're not. This research that was done was very thorough. And the research that was done just recently by Jan Holden in University of North Texas just corroborates that. We are supposed to maintain a connection with our deceased loved ones because our nervous systems simply work better. Us humans simply operate better when we hold on to that bond. We don't have to believe in an afterlife. We don't have to. We could just carry them in our hearts. But we had to take them with us. Could you just feel that collective sigh of relief of everybody listening? Because that's what we do anyway. And why carry the burden of guilt that there's something wrong with us for doing that? And our loved ones across the veil love that. 
Let me hold did, on to them. Did anybody see Toy Story 2 here? In Toy Story 2, there's a very heartbreaking scene where Woody, the cowboy toy, is put into a recycling bin. And the lead therapist in the film loves to use it as a metaphor because we're not supposed to do that with people. We're not supposed to just plant them in the ground and say goodbye. We were not built like that. We're social creatures and our loved ones mean a great deal to us. And what I tell all my clients and anybody who attends my workshops is you don't move forward without them. You don't move on without them. You move forward with them. Yes, you take them with you wherever you go. Yeah. And it doesn't mean you can't love again if in the case of a of a partner, you love differently each person. It's unique for each person, but the love you have for anybody who's passed remains. Yeah, it's beautiful. Yes. Yeah. So you're going to continue doing screenings for the goal of getting this on PBS. Yes. And after that, Netflix and after that Hulu and after that DVD, I will, I'll go through all the windows of distribution. Good. I just got to figure out how to, how I can get the most people in front of this. Yes. And that's what I'll do, whatever that means. And that's why we're doing this show right now, because when we talked after I saw the documentary, I've seen a lot of documentaries and this one just spoke straight to my heart. It's, it's, Beautifully done. Like I said, it's so balanced. That was your goal. Thank and you, Suzanne. Yeah. You leave that. everybody, you let everybody make their own decision, but how can you not make this decision when, spoiler alert, you see the effect that the, the study, the, yeah. the work had on Karen when she did the IADC and on your mom, Irene, when she tries writing with your dad. It's phenomenal. By the way, the, the, the success rate is between 70 and 80% for this particular therapy which is wow. mind blowing. That's ridiculous for any compared to any therapy. That's just a gr- un- unbelievable statistic. And that's what we're going to have to leave this with today. Somebody asked me once, you know, does chakra clearing really work? Is it real? And I said, you know, the bottom line is, is it helpful? Is it healing? And you've said that numerous times here, Steve, this therapy absolutely is healing. It is. Yeah. And your documentary is as well. So everybody click that link in the description of the show and sign up for this showing. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show, Steve. Thank you for having me. It was great. Yeah. Well, we wish you all the success in the world and we thank you for, for everything you've brought to us and please thank your mom and her daughter-in-law and everybody involved. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks again to the Unity Online team. We've loved being with you. And I'll see you on the Messages of Hope podcast, which will continue. Thanks for listening. This is Unity Online Radio the voice of an awakening world. I'm Victoria Moran. Since we launched the Main Street Vegan podcast back in 2012, lots more people have discovered the way that moving in a vegan direction can infuse our lives with vitality, spirituality, and compassion. My guests are experts on every aspect of making this work in your real life and our real world. 
Join us for Main Street Vegan here on mindbodyspirit.fm.